And if you would turn with me now to our sermon text, our sermon which comes once again this morning from the book of Jude. Of course, Jude doesn't have but one chapter, so we just note it by its verses. So today we will look at Jude verses 5 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. So I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I want to remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And do not forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. That ends the reading of God's holy word, and let us pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning once again for the chance to gather together as your people, to sit under the foot of your word and in particular, to sit under the foot of these three verses this day. Lord, we know that you have purposed each one of us to be here this morning, to see the truths that you have laid out for us in these verses. And we pray now that you would really give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand everything you have for us, that you would sow it deeply inside of our hearts and even in our collective heart as a church, and that the truths of these verses would be forever planted in the life of Village Press and in all of our hearts and would bear fruit for decades and generations to come and that that would begin even today. So we pray all this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we do come this morning to our third sermon from the book of Jude. And this is where we begin to get into the body of the letter. So if you're familiar with Jude or you've read it even a little bit, some of the things that you tend to think of from Jude are what we see in the body of the letter, and this is what we're starting into this morning. Our first sermon from verses 1 and 2 looked at Jude's opening. Our second sermon from verses 3 and 4 looked at Jude's topic sentence or his main thought, and we have to keep those things in mind as we come now to the body of the letter. Commentator Douglas Moo does a great job of giving us the context here. So he says in verse 4, which is what we looked at last week, Jude tells us why he is writing. Because false teachers have infiltrated the church and are putting the truth of Christ at risk. Now in verses 5 to 16, Jude elaborates on verse 4, describing and condemning these false teachers. Now that's important to where our study in Jude is going to go, not just today, but in our coming sermons in the future, because we need to make sure we stay in line with what Jude is doing. So let me kind of give this out there. Parents, have you ever tried to teach your child a truth or a lesson? And in doing so, you think, okay, I got to illustrate this with an example. So you think of this great example or illustration that you think this is perfect because I know my child will understand this example. You know, I think for me, I know if I'm going to try to teach Hank, about persevering or enduring. 
he and I have really enjoyed watching football over the last number of months. So I may think in my mind, man, a great illustration would be, let's look back at this game where a team looked like they were going to lose, but they persevered, they found a way to win, and that can be my illustration for this truth. Well, that's all well and good, but if Hank then hears that illustration and his only takeaway is to begin thinking about football or talking about the team, then he's actually missed the point of the illustration I was trying to make. Well, I say that because that is what we have to do in the book of Jude. That's what we have to do this morning. The illustrations that Jude uses are wonderful illustrations. But if we are not careful, we can begin to go down all these other rabbit trails about the illustrations themselves and thus miss the point of what Jude is trying to do. So as we come into our text today, we need to keep in mind what Jude is doing and what he's not doing. Jude is not trying to teach us in these verses about all the elements of these illustrations themselves. The fact that they're here may teach us some things, and those could be side notes as we work our way through Jude, and that will be fine, but we have to keep his main point at the forefront of our mind, because that is the core of what we as Christians are called to take away from these verses. The main thing Jude is trying to do is to illustrate the danger that false teachers within the Christian community present and why we must contend for the faith within our Christian communities. That's his goal. That's why he's giving these illustrations. So with that in mind, we have two points this morning. Point number one, Christians must be thoughtfully reminded of the past. And point number two, Christians must not forget the implications of the past. So Christians must be thoughtfully reminded of the past, and Christians must not forget the implications of the past. So first point, Christians must be thoughtfully reminded of the past, and we see this in verses 5 to 6. But before we get into the meat of these three examples, I do think it's helpful to note that there is a development in these three examples. All right? Now that development is not a chronological development. If what Jude was going to do was to give us a chronological development, he would begin with the angels, and then he would move to Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns, and then he would finish with the first generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt. But that's not the order. So what is he doing here then? Again, Douglas Moo is helpful. He says, by following the order he does, Jude achieves a crescendo in punishment from physical death to binding in darkness to the punishment of eternal fire. So that is the development of what Jude is doing here. He's working his way through these subsequent punishments. First, physical death and an illustration for that. Second, binding in darkness and an illustration for that. Third, the eternal fire at the time Jesus Christ returns again, and he has an illustration for that. So that's the development we want to see this morning. And it all begins with the physical death component here in verse 5. So I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but he later destroyed those who did not remain faithful. Now we see a few things here. First, I don't know about you, but it's striking to me the way that Jude makes clear it is Jesus who saved them out of Egypt. And the implication is clear. 
Jesus is the one, Jude wants us to know, who has accomplished every form of salvation throughout the history of God's redemptive plan, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So for those in Jude's day who think that Jesus' work of redemption or salvation, bringing that about, began with his first coming in human flesh, they would be wrong. Jesus Christ was living and active from eternity past, and the rescuing of Israel from Egypt was one of his mightiest acts of salvation before he ever arrived in human flesh. And here's why that's important, even for all of us. Anyone who has called upon God to rescue them from an earthly trial or an earthly struggle, it was only on account of the work of Jesus Christ that you were rescued from that. So you can think, have I ever prayed for rescuing or deliverance from an earthly trial or struggle? And if you have been delivered, it was only on account of the work of Jesus Christ. And its aim is to draw a person to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who brought about that rescuing. So think about this story of the Exodus. The Lord heard the desperate cries from his people in Egypt. In response, Jesus raised up a deliverer, Moses, and he sent that deliverer to save his people from their slavery and struggle. And when they are saved, they are called to exercise faith and trust in the one who saved them. However, as we see in the book of Numbers, the Israelites, by and large, are not faithful. They actually continually crave their former slavery, and they reject the invitation to trust in their Savior to provide for them in the future. Thus, they have forgotten that their Savior is also judge. The one who saved them judged Egypt in his saving of them. And so then, when they crave to return to Egypt, their Savior becomes a judge. And their judgment is that of physical death in the wilderness. Now, interestingly, Jesus doesn't allow them to return to their slavery, does he? That's what they want. They want to return to their slavery, but Jesus, in all of his mercy, does not allow them to return to that. But he also doesn't allow them to enjoy the fruit of their deliverance here on earth, such as the judgment of their Savior. So in the end, all but Joshua and Caleb from that entire first generation find that their Savior is also their judge, and their judgment is physical death on account of their lack of faith. Now it's at this point we could go down a myriad of rabbit trails, but what we want to focus on is what is the main point from Jude here. Well, here it is. When you think of the story of Numbers, we see 10 of the 12 spies returned from the promised land. And here's what they said. In essence, they agreed that the promised land was great, but they said it was too hard to possess. So they told the congregation of Israel that they did not need to rely on faith in the Lord to bring them into the promised land, even though he had delivered them from slavery. And the people... And this is the main application, I think, for Jude's readers and for us. The people did not contend for the faith with those ten wicked spies. And as a result, they all suffered physical death in the wilderness. And so likewise, 
These ungodly people who have weaseled their way into the churches are telling people it is too hard to possess the righteous lives that God promises to bring us here on earth. And thus, the challenge to the faithful people in the churches is to be different than that first generation in the wilderness. In Numbers, the people at large, called the Congregation of Israel, did not contend for the faith against the ungodly spies. And thus they died in the wilderness without receiving all the earthly promises God had given them. And likewise, if the faithful believers in the church refuse to contend for the faith with these ungodly leaders that are in their midst, then they too will find themselves judged in a temporal way here on earth by not receiving all of the earthly promises here in this world. So example number one is intended to show us how we must contend for the faith against ungodly people in our midst who claim that the righteous lives God wants to lead us into here in this world are too hard to possess. We have to respond to that false thinking by saying, well, if God has delivered me from slavery to sin and evil, then I can trust him to deliver me into this righteous living that he is leading me into right now. And so it was, as it was for the first generation, it's true for us, the choice is ours. We have the choice to contend for the faith against ungodly spies and leaders or suffer earthly judgment from our Savior on account of our lack of faith in him. Now, not every member of that first generation in Israel was excluded from eternal life. That's not the point Jude is making here. But they did all suffer on earth because of their unwillingness to contend for the faith in the wilderness, which is what we need to see. But Jude isn't done making his point yet because we see a further development in verse 6. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. Now, there is no lack of speculation about this verse. In fact, if you read through Jude and you may go to your pastor for questions, this is one of the verses that I would imagine you would come to. The first thing we want to ask is, well, how did the angels sin in this way? Where are they? What, what does this mean? We have a myriad of rabbit trails we could go down, and we need to avoid the temptation to speculate. Rather, we see that what Jude actually says is exceptionally clear, even if we don't know the whole backstory. So what is it that he's saying? Well, we see that at some point, God created spiritual beings, the angels. And at some point, a subsection of these angels rebelled against their creator in a very particular way. They had been given a wonderfully gracious station, but had refused to remain in that place. They refused to accept the authority they were given, and they left the place where they belonged. Now, what place is it that they belonged? We're not going to say. We don't know. What authority did they have? That point's not made clear by Jude. But that's not his point. His point is to highlight their apostasy, their rejection of all the wonderful experiences they had by being in this highly esteemed place by their creator, their Lord, and their master. They had been entrusted with a great level of authority, 
And yet they found that not enough for them, and their punishment then fits the crime. Listen to what John Calvin says, because he captures the main thought of Jude extremely well. He says, we must notice the atrocity of the punishment which the apostle mentions. They were not only free spirits, but celestial powers, but they are now held bound by perpetual chains. They not only enjoyed the glorious light of God, but his brightness shone forth in them, so that from them, as by rays, it spread over parts of the universe, but now they are sunk in darkness. To say it another way, the wonderful freedom these angels had has been replaced by chains on account of their rebellion. Their ability to spread forth the light of God throughout their appointed places in the universe has been replaced now by their existence in darkness on account of their rebellion. And Jude doesn't tell us this to make us wonder. He tells us because it has a terrifying parallel. Again, Jude is writing to the faithful in the church to contend for the faith against ungodly leaders who have weaseled their way in. And these leaders have the opportunity to freely proclaim God's glorious light and life that has come through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what their position gives them a chance to do. It is one of the greatest positions of authority a human can be given on earth. The position of authority to freely spread the light of the gospel and to both proclaim and embrace all of the transformation that it brings. But just as God has bound up these apostate angels in prisons of darkness, so too will he eventually bind up these ungodly leaders within his precious church until that day of great judgment. You see, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God did not hold back the protection of his people from these mighty angels, how much easier and certain is it that he will do the same to those in positions of authority within his church who are doing the very same things as these angels do, who out of rebellion desire to satisfy their own lusts? So what then is the encouragement for us in this verse? All right, if we are called to contend for the faith, then the answer is simple. Because ultimately, God is contending for the faith too. Y'all see that? He did not allow his people to suffer at the hands of ungodly angels for long. He contended for the faith by binding them in places of darkness for a time until Jesus returns. And so likewise, when we contend for the faith against ungodly leaders who have weaseled their way into the church, we will be ultimately successful because we can be certain that they too will be bound in darkness until the day Jesus Christ returns. Maybe not in this very second or moment, but ultimately that will be true. You see, Jude has taken two marvelous examples, two very clear illustrations And he's used them for a particular reason. He doesn't just remind us of these facts that we know. He reminds us in a way of encouraging us to contend for the faith. To contend for the faith so that we can avoid earthly destruction like the first generation of Israelites because they did not contend for the faith. And to contend for the faith because God is also contending for the faith as he demonstrated through his binding of these wicked angels. 
Judas thoughtfully reminding them of the past to give them reason and encouragement to do what he's calling them to do. Which leads then to our second point. Point number two, Christians must not forget the implications of the past. And we especially see that in verse 7. And do not forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. So this final verse completes the trajectory the first two laid out. We had the warning against earthly destruction and then the truth about this kind of present binding that is happening. And Jude now uses the example of Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns to illustrate what that day of final judgment will be like for all the ungodly at that time and for all of eternity. But before we get to that, it's critical to see the specific type of sin that Jude highlights. Because this is actually the same type of sin that these ungodly leaders who have weaseled their way into the church are promoting. Jude relates to us the specific sin of immorality, which is a sexual word, and every kind of sexual perversion as the ultimate example of what happens when people are given over completely to their sinful nature. And to see this, we need to understand the theological concept of God's restraining grace. God's restraining grace. So let me ask, why is it that human beings, apart from God, are not completely and totally wicked and evil in everything they do? Now, some people would say the fact that that's the case shows us that people are not completely and totally wicked in their hearts. But that is not what the Bible says. Rather, the reason that people on earth do not become completely and totally evil in everything they do here in their lives is because of God's restraining grace. That is the grace of God for all of humanity, believers and unbelievers alike, to restrain humanity's sin. And God does this in a variety of ways. One of the main ones is by giving us an internal conscience. Another one is by giving us an external government. And God's restraining grace does not save people for all of eternity, but it does prevent life on earth from being as bad as it would be if God did not exercise his restraining grace. But Romans 1 lays out for us what happens when God begins to remove that restraining grace. In fact, you read through Romans 1, that's the picture you're getting. What does it look like for a culture or a nation or a group of people to begin becoming more and more sinful and God continually removing more and more of his restraining grace? God is said to, quote, give people over to their sinful desires. He doesn't make people sin, but he removes his restraining grace, giving them over to what is already in their hearts so that they freely choose to run headlong into those sins without restriction. And what is the height of a society that has been had God's restraining grace removed? Well, Romans 1 gives the answer that Jude 7 gives us, exactly what we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah and their surrounding towns. It looks like when God's fully removing his restraining grace, it looks like the full freedom for humans to give themselves over 
to the depravity of their hearts, which will always evidence itself in sexual immorality and every type of sexual perversion. By the way, we even note that two of the three survivors of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's two daughters, were so desensitized to immorality and sexual perversion that they take it with them into the mountains where two new people groups are born as descendants of their father Lot, if y'all know what I'm saying, the Moabites and the Ammonites. And here's the connection for Jude. Here's the point he's driving home. These ungodly people who have weaseled their way into the church are promoting these very same things. In verse 4, Jude said that the ungodly are saying that God's marvelous grace allows Christians to live immoral lives. That is, they are pretending that God's marvelous grace frees people to pursue all the wicked desires of their hearts and to rush headlong into every kind of sexual perversion. They are actually using the grace of God to fool people into indulging in things that only occur when God's marvelous restraining grace is being removed. Y'all see the wickedness of that statement. Let me say that one more time. They are actually using the grace of God to fool people into indulging into the things that only happen when God has actually removed his restraining grace. And how wicked that this is what's taking over the church at this time. And that is why I wholeheartedly believe Jude is writing this letter. The Lord knows that there will always be times in the history of the world where his restraining grace will be removed because of the sinfulness of mankind. And so since that is going to happen all the time until Jesus Christ returns, Christians need to have an answer. Christians need to know what to do. We need to be prepared to contend for the faith and to reject that wicked doctrine from entering into the beloved church which Christ died to redeem. And how important for our day and age. You know, every denomination out there is being faced with this same false teaching and is having to make the choice of whether or not to contend for the faith, whether or not to reject the teachings of transgenderism, LGBTQ agendas, casual sex, adultery, infidelity, pornography. We live in a highly sexualized world, and the most dangerous part of that is found when ungodly leaders of the church aim to mislead the church to think that God's marvelous grace has freed them to pursue these wicked desires of their hearts. To laugh when we think of teens or 20-somethings sowing their wild oats. To feel enlightened by accepting the very LGBTQ agenda that is so clearly the evidence of God removing his restraining grace from our nation. Which leads then to the crescendo of our passage. What happened to Sodom, Gomorrah, and its surrounding towns? Fire from heaven came and destroyed them. And Jude gives us the application from that. He says the application is that that is to be a warning, a precursor, a tiny token of the eternal fire from heaven that will utterly consume forever and ever those who reject the true marvelous grace of God in favor of pursuing their heart's desires. Now there will be more that Jude is going to say in the coming weeks. 
The illustrations that Jude uses make up the majority of this letter, so we'll see that all the way through verse 16. So there will still be plenty to go. But for today, we need to keep these reminders in mind. We must not forget them. And remembering them does not really have anything to do with recalling the story. It's actually about seeing the implications. And I believe the trajectory of these three illustrations give us the most clear implication that Jude delivers. Again, we see him start with physical death in verse 5, where a lack of contending for the faith first results in the failure to receive the joy of salvation, even for saved people, while we are here on earth. Right? Not robbing us of eternal salvation, but it does rob us of our experience of the joy of salvation here on earth when we refuse to contend for the faith. But then we see it go a step further. Verse 6 moves from temporal judgment to the present judgment before Christ returns again, made clear by these wicked angels being held in chains in prisons of darkness until their final judgment comes. And then, of course, verse 7 makes crystal clear the future reality of final judgment, which is the eternal fire from heaven forever and ever. So as we finish our sermon this morning, we have just two brief applications to take away. First, for the beloved and faithful followers of Christ in this room. Y'all, we have three main reasons to be encouraged to contend for the faith. You know, contending for the faith can be hard, right? We talked last week about contending for the faith is an athletic word. It is to battle. It is to give yourself to this difficult and draining work. So it's a hard thing to do, and we need encouragement to do that. And these three verses give us that. We contend for the faith in the face of ungodly people inside the church because we don't want to fail to receive all the glorious things God wants to bring into our lives, individually and collectively. But also, we contend for the faith because God himself is always contending for the faith, which means our efforts will ultimately be successful. So we do not need to fear the struggle that contending for the faith will entail. And finally, we contend for the faith knowing that one day we will be freed from having to do so. Because on that day that the eternal fire from heaven arrives, all the ungodly will be caught up in that forever and ever. And that means they will be removed from our midst. And that battle to contend for the faith will be over forever and ever. Praise the Lord. So brothers and sisters, let us not tire of contending for the faith. And let us remember the implications of this passage because it gives us three wonderful reasons for being steadfast in those efforts. And second, our other application this morning, for those who may be in here today and have been victims of these false teachings in your past, these verses can be so encouraging. Maybe you have desired to follow Christ, but you have been deceived in some way by these false teachings. Maybe you find that you have presumed upon the marvelous grace of God to feel free to live an immoral life. And the fact that you're here today is bringing about conviction. If that's the case, then these verses could not be more comforting if you really hear and remember them. Because we realize Jude is writing because people have always been deceived by these false teachings. People have always 
had this threat before them. And so there have always been beloved believers of Christ who have been deceived by these false teachings. There have always been those who aim to satisfy their wicked lusts and lead vulnerable people into them as well. But the marvelous grace of God is actually here to free you from that struggle, to lead you into paths of righteousness that will bring you the true joy and light and life that you have been searching for. You see, the first step of contending for the faith in the church is to embrace the true faith in your heart. It is to reject these erroneous teachings that lead only to destruction and receive the true, real, authentic, marvelous grace of God that leads to eternal life. The offer before you right now is to receive all of the things in this earthly life that God has brought to you by His Son through His life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And to be placed in the exact place in this world where God intends to use you to display his glorious light and life. Not to reject or despise the place you've been put, but to actually embrace that this is where God desires to use me to expand his light and life. Also that when the day comes for the eternal fire from heaven to descend upon the ungodly forever and ever, you will be freed from that punishment because your Savior has taken it from you already also that you may live and dwell with him forever and ever no longer having to contend against any of these false teachings y'all that's the message of the gospel that is what Jude desires his hearers to trust in and that is what Jesus Christ gives to those who truly follow him as the Lord and master of their life and that can be the story that is told about you from this day forward forever and ever. So embrace the true reality of God's marvelous grace and take up the place of service that God has given you along with everyone else in this room who has truly put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is the wonderfully blessed job of contending for the faith, knowing that as you are doing so, the true marvelous grace that you are contending for will evidence itself in the salvation and light and life of many that you communicate it to while there is still time. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us these wonderful illustrations to show us, to encourage us, to contend for the faith. Lord, may we be encouraged from this day forward. And I pray that you would, would plant these illustrations in our hearts and minds. They may not be ones we think about every day, but on the days it gets hardest for us to contend for the faith, may you remind us thoughtfully of the implications of the past and perhaps even of these three exact examples, Lord. We pray that your grace to us would lead us into these righteous lives that you promise to the joy of salvation. And I pray this day, if there's anyone listening to this sermon who has been misled and has not yet fully come back to you, Lord, may you use these words to bring them back into the marvelous grace and light and life that comes from the gospel. 
And may that always be the ministry of our church here at Village Press. Thank you for your word to us. And may it bear fruit today and for generations to come here at Village Press. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.